Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with us another Tuesday evening, where we are reflecting into the Church Fathers. And if you are a faithful listener, you know that we are in, well, arguably the most famous of all the Church Fathers, St. Augustine. And and because he is so well known and he has written so much, we have been uh, studying St. Augustine and reflecting upon the life and works of St. Augustine for more than just one or two weeks. In fact, this is our fifth week of taking up some of St. Augustine's uh, thought. And uh, as I do from one Tuesday evening to the next, I have John O'Hare with me. So, John, it is great to have you with me another Tuesday evening. Thank you, Joe. Nice to be here again. So, John, last week we had the opportunity to begin our discussion on the City of God as we were talking about Election Day. And I thought what we could do this evening is really wrap up our discussion on the City of God. And in doing so, for all intents and purposes, I think tonight will be our last night with St. Augustine. Um, so what more can we say about the City of God? Well, he says uh, in the beginning of Book 19, around Chapter 4, if I am asked what stand the city of God would take on the issues raised, and first what the city thinks of the supreme good and ultimate evil, the answer would be, she holds that eternal life is the supreme good and eternal death supreme evil, and that we should live rightly in order to obtain the one and avoid the other. Pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Our job here is to get to heaven and to avoid hell. Mm-hmm. Now he says a little, little later on in the book, after all, Peace is the end of this city, which is the same, which is the theme of this work. Besides, peace is so universally loved that its name falls sweetly on the ear. Now, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody is going to disagree with this. Perhaps the first one, you have to be a believer to believe to get into heaven and into hell. Now, the book is not easy to understand. There is history in it, which is a lot easier to follow because there are stories in it. Mm-hmm. But once you get into the, shall we say, theoretical part, he doesn't come out with a you know, we're going to go with this emperor or against that emperor. He's not here to make political arguments in that sense. Mm-hmm. But he is trying to make ethical stat- statements in which we, as human beings, can attempt to, to follow. He takes on the theater. Mm-hmm. Because the theater in Rome, skepticism is one of the little models going on, and it's kind of funny, but he is quite opposed to, he says, that sort of theater... Uh, gives people a, a jaundiced view of their civilization. And yeah. I'm thinking of Hollywood in our own times. You know, mm-hmm. what goes, I mean, times haven't changed. Mm-hmm. And, no. it, it, you know, and no. it's amazing how much similarity I find here. He is quite down on Hollywood. Another uh, item he gets in on is the family. He has the four aspects of family, the city, and the world. From what the family is, that leads you into the city. And he's for a well-ordered family in which you have a situation of obedience, authority, and also justice, people getting their due. And I'm thinking the biggest cause of poverty in the United States is a single-parent family. It doesn't mm-hmm. get talked about it, but that is. And I mean, everybody agrees that that is your cause. Yes. And 
if you have a well-ordered family, that can lead you into a better city. They really didn't have nations in those days. And I thought, you know, certainly we can use some of that yeah. today. Yeah, you know, John Paul II, in his work uh, on the family, Familiaris Consortio, his apostolic exhortation, he likes to use the phrase, the family is the cell to society. Because before societies change, John, people must first change. And where do they change? Well, what is the concreteness and particularity of where our daily conversion takes place, but in the family setting? Every vibrant society is going to first have vibrant families. And that certainly is what St. Augustine is getting after. And so family is at the heart of evangelization. And I bring up that word, John, evangelization, because as St. Augustine talks about theater, I mean, how important is that? Huh? I mean, you talk about Hollywood. There is an emphasis in the church today to take various genres, various mediums, and to utilize them so as to evangelize the people of God, to evangelize our, our local neighborhoods. And why? Well, um, Satan, the adversary, is doing a pretty good job of that, using Hollywood to, if, if I dare use the word in this case, to evangelize the people of God towards his kingdom, his false kingdom. Now, relevant because what we need to do is see what St. Augustine's after. He wants us to understand and appreciate that everything that belongs to a city, everything that belongs to a culture, is ultimately the natural outgrowth to how we spend our time. He, uh, he gives two uh, little couplets mm. uh, from poems that were current at his time. Here's one. A wife I wed, what a worry, what a shrew. The babies were born and the worries grew. Okay, funny, not terribly Christian. Mm -hmm, Another mm -hmm. one. Slights and fights and spirits vexed, war today and peace the next. Now he quotes these because he wants to say, this is leading you down a road we don't want to go. This is something that Augustine would seriously say. If we are asked how a life can be happy before we are saved, we have the answer of St. Paul. For in hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For how can a man hope for what he sees? Mm -hmm. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, hope, those mm -hmm. virtues mm -hmm. are a big thing. And if you go back to his confessions, you can see that very prominent in his uh, tole lege yes. that time in his yes. life. You know, take, yes. yeah, take and read. Yeah, as Thomas Aquinas w would put it, hope is to see the potential of the yet unseen to see the potential of the yet unseen and the confident assurance of what is yet to come. Uh, that's what that uh, moral virtue of hope is all about. You mentioned peace, John, and I want to talk about that briefly, specific to your mentioning of it. Now, yeah, it's not going to overwhelm us. It's not going to shock us to talk about, yeah, it should all be ordered to peace. But if you go into the catechism, there is a statement that, that I recall now Peace is the goal of Christian life. Now, what does that highlight? I mean, is St. Augustine, is, is the Catechism of the Catholic Church saying that uh, <laughs> the absence of warfare, or as Pope Francis says it in the Joy of the Gospel, <laughs> a negotiated settlement is the end goal? No. 
No, when we talk about peace, we're just not talking about the absence of warfare, but spiritual welfare. Because the biblical vision to peace, the peace that our Lord says, peace be with you every time he walks Mm -hmm. into a a home. Or Paul, peace and greetings to you when he starts his epistles. What kind of peace is that? That in the Greek is harmony with God. We must remember the Old Testament, shalom, peace. It is covenant harmony with God. So when St. Augustine is talking about peace and the catechism is talking about peace, it's not talking about some contemporary understanding of the absence of war or negotiated settlement. Yeah, those things are good, but they spring forth from something else. And that is covenant harmony with God, to be in relationship with God. Again, that great covenant understanding of what uh, scripture reveals to us, right? Not this is yours and this is mine as some sort of compact agreement, but I am yours and you are mine. That's what St. Augustine is after. That's what he's talking about. St. Augustine is not a pacifist. No. Uh, Here is a little bit of a quote from uh, chapter 7 of uh, book 19. A good man would be under compulsion to wage no wars at all if there were no such things as just wars. A just war, moreover, is justified only by the injustice of the aggressor. And the injustice ought to be a source of grief to any good man, Mm. because it is human injustice. It would be deplorable in itself, apart from being a source of conflict. Okay, so the aggressor and the seriousness of that aggression is what causes the just war. Now... Yeah, well, and as St. Augustine talks about it there, John, you talk about a pacifist versus active. I mean, this is really uh, what drives St. Augustine to better understand who we are and and where we are going. I mean, because it's in that chapter, chapter 19, where he really takes up what we've talked about in the past on this program with some of the other church fathers, the relationship between contemplation and the act of life. He would say, you know, hey, the act of life needs to be able to draw back and to recollect so as to make sure uh, that you know you are doing what God wants you to do. But the contemplative life isn't intended to be some, you know, uh, journey where there's a vacancy of mind. You need to be constantly seeking truth. Uh, so he's, he's playing around with this. And John, why does he play around with this? What's going on in the city of God? This reflection, while it is historical, Uh, philosophical, uh, theological, it comes from him reflecting out from his own experiences. I mean, this is something that uh, Benedict talks about as he discusses his three conversions. We discussed four weeks ago, right, the journey of his initial conversion, where he was near Christianity because of his mother, St. Monica. And so he had some sense of what that was all about. Uh, And then uh, his love for philosophy he begins to appreciate uh, the world around him, the Logos. But the Logos was still distant. And then he comes into contact with sacred scripture. And as we noted, what, four weeks ago, John, he had that uh, voice in his ear, uh, pick up and read. And he goes to Romans 13. Romans 13, verses 13 to 14. And what do we have there from St. Paul? But abandon the works of the flesh and dress yourself with the pure cloth of Christ. And it was in that moment that he experiences his first conversion, if you will. Uh, And as he put it, uh, you are converting me to yourself, as he talked about it in his book, Confessions. 
And then, and I think this is so important, it really comes back to the city of God, John. In his second conversion, after he's baptized, he, he returned to Africa and founded a small monastery where he retreated with a few friends to dedicate himself to the contemplative life and study. Again, something we talked about before, and we kind of juxtapose that against Benedict's decision to go into, quote-unquote, retirement to be a contemplative and study. Essentially, for Augustine, he was living the dream. I mean, this was his life's dream. Now he was called to live totally for the truth. And as Benedict talks about it, with the truth, in friendship with Christ, who is truth. And this dream, this living the dream, this beautiful dream, lasted three years until... He was, against his will, ordained a priest at Hippo and destined to serve the faithful, continuing, yes, to live with Christ and for Christ, but at the service of all. This was very difficult for him, but he understood from the beginning that only by living for others and not simply for his private contemplation could he really live with Christ and for Christ, serving the body of Christ. And ultimately, this becomes huge for him as he begins to go deeper in his faith, realizing that obedience is a virtue. So he's assigned a parish, and he learns to communicate his faith to simple people, and thus learn to live for them in what became his hometown. And this is where he discovers his second conversion. And that second conversion is essentially speaking simply to the people in a very humble way. It was hard for him. He needed to die to himself. And what did he first need to die to, John? This desire to live exclusively the contemplative life. But he knows the importance of the active life, right? He's not a pacifist. He's active. He's going to engage. And once he realizes this, and once this seeps into his soul, this becomes a kind of framework to see the world. And as he notes, the city of God comes out from this. Uh, I think part of that second version, um, to preach continuously, discuss, reiterate, edify, be at the disposal of everyone, these are things he tried to do. That's hard work. And I also read that he tried to make his Latin simpler mm-hmm. so that the yes. people of North Africa could understand him and be persuaded uh, about what he was trying to say. And then there was a third conversion, I believe I also read you, uh, in which he, we keep on going until we die. Yes. And we keep on going in humility, and we recognize that we're sinners, and we journey along with the Lord in hope day after day. And no day is boring. You know, mm-hmm. Each day is special in and of itself. And we do it for the long run. And his life went on for a while. He had a long run. Yeah. And, you know, what was going on there? Well, he took that passage. I think it's um, what Matthew 5, 48, uh, be perfect like my father in heaven is perfect. Mm-hmm. He took that passage literally. So he was seeking perfection each and every day. And it was, it was becoming this big weight. And then he realized that only our Lord Jesus Christ is perfect, right? Uh, within the context that, as he was talking about, we didn't get to the Immaculate Conception quite yet. <laughs> but uh, so he begins to reread the Sermon on the Mount. And again, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew uh, chapters 5 to 7. And uh, what he quickly discovers, John, is that uh, you want to know what? 
this uh, Christian gig, it's 24-7, 365. It, it is not this uh, tendency that we have today, John, to approach Christianity as, as a nine-to-five deal. You know, you come home from, from uh, your, your Christian deal and you hang up your hat and you're done with it. No, 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 no. That's not what it's all about. It's around the clock. Uh, of course, this is what Paul wants us to see when in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he says, pray without ceasing. Well, what does that mean? Pray without ceasing. Yeah. It's around the clock. Yeah. Conversation with God. Seeking a deeper conversion. And he did. He always went back to, you use the word humility. He'd always go back to that interior attitude of humble faith. And out from that certainly is the growth. So for Pope Benedict, as he speaks to these three conversions, uh, the first, dressing uh, yourself in the pure cloth of Christ. Um, the second, being able to be at the disposal of your people in this simplicity and humility. And the third, realizing that conversion is a gradual transformation uh, that never ends. You know, one little thing, that I, but he had an addiction, which we talked about earlier, yes. to the opposite sex. Yes. Now, here he is in Hippo, relatively young, half his congregation is women, and of course he has eyes. Yep. Not, I mean, whatever problems there are, we, they don't come up in any writing, they don't come up in any action, he lives a good, chaste, holy life, and who knows what temptations came his way. But yeah. I mean, I don't think, I mean, temptations are always there, no matter how holy you are. I, I just really admire, I mean, he just, he just really changed completely after his baptism, and I just really admire and respect that. Yeah, well, that first conversion, I mean, it's a very decisive conversion. I mean, remember what that word repentance means in the Gospels, right? <clears throat> Excuse me, repentance, the Greek metanoia. It's that decisive turn towards Christ, and just not a turn and a contrition for what you've done, but also at the same time a resolve to change. Uh, one Augustine, John, was resolved to change. Yeah. Now, I want to bring up something else as you're talking about this, because I think this is very, very important. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI devoted his first encyclical, Deus Caritas S, that is God is love, to St. Augustine. And why did he do that? Well, what does he talk about? <laughs> In the whole first half of God is love, he talks about the relationship between Eros and Agape. Now, what is Eros and Agape? Well, this is the stuff that uh, St. Augustine, at the very least, was aware of and reflecting upon a little bit. Eros is that erotic human love. Agape is the divine sacrificial love. Agape purifies and infuses Eros with life-giving power. Benedict wants us to see this clearly in Deus Caritas Est, and this is why he spends the whole first half of his encyclical talking about the importance of seeing the relationship between the two. You know, eros, this erotic love, it was never intended to be autonomous from God. No, male and female, he created them, and we are to see each other in light of one another. And as John Paul II talks about, I don't want to turn this into a theology of the body, but it's an important point. And it's what really drives Benedict to write what he's writing about, that uh, the sexual urge in of itself is a good thing. Yep. And as John Paul II would put it, it is the raw material for the more authentic love to develop, because in that urge, we see other. 
But the Eros love is not the end. It's a means to an end. And of course, that is agape love. And why am I talking about this? Because Benedict is reflecting upon it in Deus Caritas S. John, and he uh, turns to St. Augustine, and he says, this is to you. Um, and there's a reason why, and it goes back to what you were just saying. Here's a man who openly struggled with his sexual addiction, openly, and he, he, he was candid about it. And yeah, this, this wasn't something that he just stopped. He understood mm -hmm. while it was decisive. It was decisive. He understood the need to take that pure cloth of Christ. That's why Romans 13, verses 13 to 14 is so important. Abandon the works of the flesh and gird yourself with the purity of Christ. Colossians 3.10 says, dress yourself in the pure cloth of Christ, the garment of virtue, the garment of purity. That was huge for St. Augustine. That's what the city of God is about. Mm -hmm. You want to be in the city of God, you do exactly that. Amen. Now, let me just, he, he quotes from Exodus chapter 22, verse 20. Now, this is one of our commandments. Mm. And here it is. He that sacrifices to God shall be put to death, save only to the Lord. That's what he says. A pretty severe statement. Yes. Now, yes. Uh, I'm quoting from chapter 19, or rather from book 19. After that, we get into the difference between the two cities after you die. Mm -hmm. You know, heaven and hell. That's mm -hmm. what the next mm -hmm. book is going to be about. Mm -hmm. but I found this to be interesting that when the Romans sacrificed to the pagan gods, that's what he originally began to write this city. Yes, yes. And But it really wasn't going to do them much good. You sacrifice to God. That's what you're supposed to do. And if you want to be truly in the city of God, that's what you do. Now, he realizes that not everybody's going to agree with this, and we still have to, to live together mm -hmm. in some kind of harmony. And he has other parts of book uh, 19 in which he says um, cities originate for various reasons, and that is their original get-together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, I mean, take a look at our own country. Yes. Take a look at the Constitution, the DFI. Yep. That's why we are—that's our purpose. Yeah. You know, I think a salient point to be had there as you talk about, as you bring out Exodus 22, John, is to remember, and certainly I think this is what St. Augustine's after—, after is that culture in of itself is a reflection of who and what we worship, yes. right? Remember, culture from the Latin cultus means to worship. Yes. And so what does this mean? Well, we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we spend our time and what do we do with that time? Okay, if we are spending our time, John, in theater, uh, watching all of these rated R movies or triple X movies, well, what then is going to happen? If collectively the people within a city are doing this, <laughs> the culture within that city is going to reflect that worship, that false worship. Now, if we are uh, receiving our Lord in the Eucharist each and every day, or as much as we can, uh, then what's going to happen in that city? Well, <laughs> that city is going to reflect uh, the one true God that you worship in all of its grandeur and all of its beauty. So, yeah. St. Augustine wants us to see the direct relationship between cult and and what uh, the city of God is all about. Yeah. I think that's very Im important. He he makes a point that it doesn't matter whether you're contemplative or at least use the word, or at least the, my book translated, administrative type. Okay? Mm -hmm. Yes. E either type gets into heaven. And if you're contemplative and you see your fellow man suffering, you better do something about it. And if you're an administrator and you don't pray, <laughs> your administration isn't going to be very good. Yeah, it goes back to that point, huh, John, that uh, the contemplative life and the active life 
are to be seen in light of each other. They are mutually illuminating. You know, the Martha and Mary moment. They form and inform each other. The book kind of winds up with, he reflects a little bit on St. Paul and, and, and Jeremiah the prophet. Both yes. of them lived in crummy societies. I mean, Jeremiah, the Babylonians. Were, yes. Okay. Yeah. And St. Paul was with the uh, emperors uh, persecuting them. And, you know, it's okay. I mean, it isn't okay. But, I mean, this is frequently the sort of thing that we are in. And we just have to have our faith and we have to hang on. And, you know, he's not going to tell us how to vote. That's not what this book is about. No. And if you no. want to find out how to vote, take a look at various recommendations around voting time. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's an interesting book. You know, it kind of reminds you a little bit of Plato's politics. You know, sure. I can't really yeah, tell yeah, you how yeah. to vote, and I can't, yeah. you know, but it, it is it is just deep, and it is penetrating, and I mean, it's a challenge Well, I mean, me. and, it, and it wouldn't surprise, I think, any of our listeners to know uh, how influenced Augustine was by Plato, and, and why, because ultimately what stands at, at the center of what we're talking about right now, but the dialogue. I mean, we discover truth in and through the dialogue. One of the quintessential truths of Christianity is that we discover truth in a dialogue, literally dialogic, right? And right. logic is the uh-huh. instrument to reason. And so when two um, are gathered in a dialogue, there's an actual dialogue being had, we can begin to discover truth um, if it is a dialogue that is actually rooted in what <laughs> a dialogue is about, logic again and, and reason. And of course, we see this truth in relationship to faith, right? Because if there's anything that St. Augustine teaches us, it is, of course, the relationship between faith and reason, right? You know, again, uh, faith without reason is what you have on 911. Uh, reason without faith is all of these philosophies that teach us anything goes. And ultimately, faith is removed and experience is put in its place. Um, and so this is important for Augustine, and it's important for us today uh, to have that, not just conversation, but very real dialogue, uh, putting the principle of truth at the middle of the table and having a very real dialogue about the things around us. And we were talking before, and you were talking about, uh, you'd mentioned the word conscience. So what does the word conscience mean? That conscience is the law that is written in our heart right? And uh, Jesus Christ is the incarnation of law, and so we are called to conform ourselves to the truths of Jesus Christ. And uh, we do this by studying, and we do uh, this by uh, praying up so that we might better understand what we are studying. But uh, forming our conscience is very important to our call to be a faithful citizen. And with that, John, just one last closing thought. As we've talked about St. Augustine, we do have to go back to that great line, O oh, beauty ever ancient, ever new. If one thing has come through for me, this radio program, is that St. Augustine has something to teach us today about the new evangelization. If you look at not only his three conversions and the importance of seeing our call to be converted to Christ unto our deathbed, he also reminds us that if we're going to build up a new city of God, here on earth. We have to do so mindful of the world we live in so as to engage the people of the world with uh, the light of truth. And with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.